Blank check with Griffin and David. Blank check with Griffin and David. Don't know what to say or to expect. All you need to know is that the name of the show is Blank Check. The notion that one's goal in life is to be happy, that your own happiness is the goal. I just don't podcast. So many. He's just dropping pearls uh, throughout. There should probably be by law a documentary crew following him at all times. I, just, just to catch yeah, any pearls. Yeah, I queued up the um, the movie on my iPad because there are a couple things I want to read straight from. Yeah, the, you should. Uh, this thing is devastating. It's incredible. Here's a, here's a question that struck me while watching this last night. Is Miyazaki the director we've covered who would hate this podcast the most? I'm just sort of going through to triple check that absolutely, of course, you're right. I, right? I mean, there's no Ian. I mean, man. I don't think were, man would be too impressed. But I don't he th- was nice to the one Heat Minute boy. He was. So he's clearly has some appreciation for, you know, uh, the new world of podcasting. That is true. Um, um, I, I feel like George Lucas wouldn't like hearing... The Star Wars episodes. No, but I think he might appreciate that we're trying to grapple with his prequel characters and works at least, you know, somewhat sincerely. I don't think so. Well, probably not. I think he would say, they're kids movies, you're not supposed to take them seriously. <laughs> I think he would love... Well, I don't know why you're talking... He was on the show. Oh, you're right, Multiple he was on the show. So, uh, and he didn't like it. Yeah. He was um, on it twice, two-time guest. I think Verhoeven would be tickled. Oh, most certainly. Uh, I think, yeah, I think... Eh. Yeah, no, there's no question. Shyamalan, I think, would love it. I think it'd be an emotional roller coaster for him, as most things seem to be. Right? Yes. He seems he's he lives on the surface. Yeah. His feelings are on the surface. So he'd really he'd be with us in the praise, and he'd really be devastated by the criticism. Right? He's sort of a roller coaster guy. I feel like we can say this now that it's been almost a year, but we were like in the preliminary stages of getting to sit down to talk with him. One day. But but I I can say I this for Glass this year. We had like a, a two month long like email back and forth. Yeah, that we thought it was looking like there was a good chance. Hey, at least they didn't just ignore us. They were talking to us. It was a concept. It was a concept. They were intrigued by the concept. It was a concept. Um, but he's gonna make more movies. I believe he just signed. Didn't he just sign a deal to make at least two? Right. Really? And I yeah, he's got an Apple show, which uh, well, those Apple seem uh, infallible. Apple no, TV Plus? Uh, he signed a new deal, yes, with um, uh, Universal Pictures, he signed which a is deal. a well-known movie studio. Yes. He signed a deal with Universal Pictures to uh, mortgage his house two more times. <laughs> right. Is it just a distribution deal? Um, Just movies to come out Feb 2021 and Feb 2023. Nice. Um, I do Good think dates. it's... I, I do think that the, the structure is as it was for his other... His He's got to bet the farm. Um... No, yes, yeah, yeah, yes. He will finance his two movies the same way. It's fucking rad. Um, yeah, I mean, I think every other director we've covered on the show might get a little sensitive at certain parts. Certainly. But but would generally not be as philosophically opposed to this endeavor as, as Miyazaki. Sure. Um, it's such a weird thing, like, an hour into this movie when he makes a joke. Um. Well, his version of a joke usually is that he says something sort of like 
crueler, or devastating, and then he sort of like chuckles. That's why there's like an hour in, he makes like a pure joke. Yeah. I'm trying to remember what it was, but it was something about like, like, oh, you're going to throw your back out. Right, right, right. Like it was like a dad joke. Right. It wasn't like him like dropping the most like, when, when like edgelord comedians say like, look, I'm just telling the truth. People sure. don't like it, but I'm just right. telling the truth. You're saying Miyazaki's actually that. Miyazaki's like actually the one person telling the truth, right? Look, we're here to discuss The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness. Of course, this is a documentary one by Mami uh, Sunada, mm-hmm. Mami Sunada, mm-hmm. um, about the production process of The Wind Rises. We're closing the book on uh, Howl's Moving Podcast. Correct. It's been a while since we talked Miyazaki, so you had to remember this miniseries name. We're like 50% through Demi, and we took a step back into Miyazaki, which turns out it was to our benefit that we... Waited. Yeah, because he, right, yeah. Because the landscape's fucking changed and we're going to get New into landscape. It. I New mean, landscape. probably changed in really magical and mystical ways that are really beautiful to consider, right? Or the hills streaming culture is just yeah, digesting it's, us all. It's just what's, it's just the new way that the people trend. watch things. Yes. Like, and that's just how it is. Right. Where everyone's like, well, I think what HBO Max is going for is this. And I'm like, I think what HBO Max is going for is that it will be one of the major networks because that's what network TV is going to be. It'll be yes. like the big streaming network. Yeah. Like, that's what they're going for. Everyone just needs to have one now. You know what's fascinating to me? And I know we're shooting 17 different directions here, but all these things are on subject. I'm just dropping contradictory, not contradictory, but uh, I'm I'm shooting bullets in opposite directions. Okay. All on this this theme, okay? Okay. Uh, Miyazaki, a little more difficult to watch these films than most in that you have to buy the physical things. Or you need a desk, or maybe you go them. to the movies, or sure, right, yeah. right, go to a library. Mm-hmm. Uh, the digital rental is the big thing you're lacking with Miyazaki right. up until twenty. Because I'll pay four bucks to watch a movie. Well, this is a know, thing I have, I have found that uh, now, and we've been doing this show for almost five years now. This is such a cultural shift. Mm. Now, if we cover a movie that is not free, quote unquote. Yeah, sure. Streaming available, available, available on a platform right. and it requires a $3 rental. People go, oh, this movie's like impossible to find. <laughs> right? It's like easier than ever. When I was a kid, you had to go to the dang totally. video store and maybe it. they didn't even have it. But you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. well, you're saying kids today. Kids today. You're putting on an apron and you're grumbling uh, about how people bow. Full awareness that some of the kids are. People in their forties who listen to this show, um, but but I I understand it. It's like we're conditioned at this point. I use the the Apple TV app, right? So do I. I know what you're talking about, where you can sort of say into the uh, remote, essentially like, well, you don't like to say it. Into I'm not the that fancy. Okay, well, I'm not talking to no robots. I'm typing it in. Well, but I'll just like take my remote and I'll just be like, fancy na- Sims. Name a Talk movie. Like name a movie. Well, just pick a movie, right? Uh, Scooby-Doo 2 Monsters Unleashed. Scooby-Doo 2 Monsters Unleashed. And it will go like, it's available right now on Stars, And I like subscribe to Stars, so I can watch it. Well, I'm a man of words. I like to read that text as it shows up on screen. But yes, it will tell you that, right? Right. It'll like, it sort of collates all the subscriptions you might have. Yes. And it finds the store. And then once in a while, you want to watch Scooby-Doo 2 Monsters Unleashed, and no one's Every got night. it. Right. So it says rent for three ninety nine, And I'm totally. like, well, I could do that, or I could just watch one of the 40 million other movies that I could just watch in a second right now. Yes. And so maybe then that's sort of part of it, right? People are yes. just like, well, there's other options. And and even sometimes it will say like, you know, a, a subscription you haven't necessarily signed up for. 
Sure. It'll just be like, just so you know, this is on Cinemax. And right. You can like, get it on oh, Magnolia Select. Right. And you're do like, I do a one week free trial? Right, so yeah. I have, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, but but yes, I mean, this guy has been the one major outlier where it's HM. like. HM. HM. Miyazaki-san. Hayao Miyazaki. Miyazaki. Uh, uh, where he's just like, don't want it on digital at all. It flattens the movies out. I want to control the context in which these films are seen. Right. I want them to retain their specialness. Because you're never going to be able to say to a Netflix or an HBO Max, like, hey, we'll give you the rights, but only if the movies can only be watched at like a home theater experience. Right. Because I think part of what distresses is, it's like, what if kids are watching it on their t- tiny little phone? What if yeah. they're not even playing the sound? Like, right. you know, like things like that, you know. God forbid, Netflix 4X speed. Yeah, what if they're watching it at 4X? Right, any of those things. Not 4DX. I mean, he would love 4DX. If Miyazaki loved one thing, finally, the smells I dreamed of. <laughs> oh, boy. The back punches I had always imagined in my heart. <laughs> um, I'm very curious. We were talking about this the other day, but, uh, of course, this is Blank Check. It's podcast about filmographies. Directors have mass success early on. They're clearly giving stories of blank checks, make whatever crazy passion products they want. Sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce baby. Um, and, and we're closing the book on Miyazaki. The big leather-bound book that paid off brilliantly in our final episode. Well, you never really let me in on that bit, I will say. You kind of set it up without. We never discussed a closing moment. You know, Chip Smith will be back. It's called improv, my friend. Yeah, right. Well, you're only one of us who's a trained improviser. Well. That's interesting. Well, two, right? Thank you. Are you a trained improviser? Uh, You took a class. I took some classes. I did some improv. I think that counts as trained. I'll take it. Yeah. I'm more actually responding because I had uh, cut all that out. Good call. You cut all of that out? Yeah, it wasn't very good. No, it wasn't good. Okay. Should I keep it in? No. No. no, Keep it cut out. Keep it out and double cut it. (laughs) (laughs) So then here's some real. Keep keep it out and have it? Mm. Would that be the reverse? Here's here's some real bonus content. Mm-hmm. We did a bad Chip Smith bit and it's gone. You'll yeah, never hear it. You'll never hear it. <laughs> Salute, bad Chip Smith. <laughs> it's not even like paywall stuff. It's just like not good. Yeah, what if we just put it on the paywall and the Patreon numbers just collapse? Collapse. <laughs> Woo! Um, whatever, it's cool. Yeah, everything's good. So, uh, this is the thing you and I were talking about. Yeah. I would not be surprised if uh, a, a sort of condition of the deal with HBO Max mm was that uh, they have their own sort of... A vertical, essentially, right? Like a section within the site? A vertical. That that, that, that it's sort of like... Uh, I don't know. What's the word I'm looking for? Cloistered? Even that, but that he has some ability to sort of frame the films, contextualize the films, put them in their own little section. Sure. You right. know? Right. It's not just like Spirited Away is next to Snow Dogs in the yeah. Yeah. own silo. Right. A silo, sure. Right. Um, now, if you're Noah Jupe, don't get in that silo. You might drown in corn. Okay. It's a reference to A Quiet Place. Yes. Just thought I'd do that. Noah Jupe. Noah Jupe, isn't that his name? Yeah, it's quite a pull, though. Jupey. He's everywhere. What else is he in? Jupey Jupe? Am I not thinking? He's well, in he's Honey in Boy that. this year, which that. is sort of his breakout. Oh, and what? The corn. He's in the corn silo, yeah. of course. Um, but no, he, I mean, he was in Suburbicon. I feel like he was in one other thing. He's sort of. Uh, I didn't realize that was the same kid. He's well. This is the new kid, you know. This is kind of like 
He's the new kid. You know, like, yeah, is this... Oh, Wonder, apparently. I haven't seen Wonder. Apparently he's in Wonder. Hmm. Oh, and he's in Ford versus Ferrari as well. He plays Christian Bale's plucky Car. young son. <laughs> you know that movie where Christian Bale jumps on a child's shoulders and goes, vroom, vroom, Can vroom. I do a joke about Ford versus Ferrari, which is not going to be... It, it's going to be coming out right around at this point. yeah. You know, it has... It's a movie that I, I I like things about and I think is pretty fun to watch, but is sort of like not quite you know great great. Mm-hmm. And one of the problems is it has this wife character played by Katrina Balfe uh-huh. from Outlander. And very good actor. She's Christian Bale's yeah. wife, and it's a lot of like oh, you know like you know one of those very thankless characters that you really wish hoped we were done with at this point. She even in a period lawn chair of, to watch her husband get in a exactly. fist fight. I think it would be funny to do a movie like that, a biopic, where you've got like Damon and Bale, right? Where the wife is, both of them have wives played by the same actor. They have the same name and they perform the same function and no one addresses it. Where basically they just both are married to the same woman. Yeah. But it's not. It's not like, it's just like where the movie just doesn't even bother. It literally like clips the wife into both scenes. I've talked about this, but uh, the untouchables. Uh, the Untouchables. Where Patricia uh, Clarkson the, okay, the, plays the, the wife the, the of Elliot movie. Ness. Sure, right. Uh, who has a, a pretty substantial role. Sure. Maybe the largest role outside of the Untouchables themselves and Ness. Right. A lot of screen time. Mm-hmm. Phenomenal actress. Right. Is credited in the final film as Ness's wife. Mm, boy. Is never given a character name, despite the fact that that movie is based on a real person. Yeah. And they could have just looked up what was Elliot. They could have grabbed their little Syria remote. Like Blue Blood Sims. Right. <laughs> Blue Bloods, but like, no, I don't want to compare myself to the show you were in either. Wow. Um, I do think of Blue Bloods as a Griffin. I think it's fucked, fucked up and the Untouchables didn't acknowledge that like the real Ness had a yo-yo and a backwards baseball cap and a stripy shirt. I mean, an incredible joke. <laughs> and I'm too tired to laugh if I didn't sleep at all last night, but inside I am guffawing. I, I am. I'm very happy about it. Deeply, it's amused. one of those jokes that one is silly and funny, and two also you can just imagine the joke. Like yes. you just imagine Ness in the movie, come yeah. constantly dressed like that, and you can have a little laugh. Hi, yeah. <laughs> I can't do it, Costner. Kevin fucking Costner. Kevin fucking Costner. Hayao Miyazaki, King of Dreams and Madness. I just wanted to say we're yeah. talking about. He's you know he's a truth teller. You know he pushes boundaries right, right. but. The, the sometimes same, he misses. Sometimes he misses. Except he never misses. He actually never has never yeah. missed in his entire yeah. life. No, but in this movie, it's about him. It's following his creative process on this film. And Doing yes, the it's sort of, yeah. And then at the same time, everyone in the movie, at the same time, Isao Takahata is making The Tale of the Princess Kaguya, which was supposed sure. to come out exact same the exact same time. Yeah. But was so massively delayed it came out like 18 months later. Well, he's almost like the Godot. Well, of that's this. right. And and yeah. everyone is like you know, Miyazaki, yeah, yeah, sure. He'll bust your balls, but talk about Jesus Christ. <laughs> that guy scares the shit out of me. Like, anytime anyone brings him up, they're like, oh, Paku-san, well, oh, you know, I don't yeah. know, I don't know what to say. Like, he's this nightmare figure looming over things. At the end of the movie, he pops in for one second, and he's just like, I think what's good about Hayao Miyazaki is he makes good films. And, like, that's all they get out of him. Yeah. It's just wild stuff. This whole thing is wild. Uh... Yes, I, I to go back to this like the truth teller thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it it never feels like he is trying to be provocative. No, it just feels like at any given moment he takes a deep breath and consumes his surroundings, and then just perfectly, eloquently, but cuttingly 
lays you out. Analyzes the situation. But it's like if it's like your grandpa but who it's not has just no. You out. Sometimes it's the world. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes it's, about it's the world. a room. He lays the world out. Right. Sometimes it's about Ghibli. Yeah. Uh, it's just a name he so got from an airplane. Himself. Like that's the but thing he, is that he feels so kind of clear about everything around him. And this documentary is so much about the purity of his process, and it does feel like right. There is like a weird purity to all the things you're describing. Yes. But he is, he's like your grandpa who has no filter, except instead of just like saying some sort of like vaguely offensive thing. He's correct. He's right. Exactly. You're like someone like this shouldn't exist who is just this consistently correct about it. He's everything. always got his apron on. It's incredible. What a king. The apron wearing king. When, when like, they, and that he owns the company. I know. But he's, he's, it's about the work. Yeah. It's dude, about the, the process. There's this, that very early scene where they're having the producer, Suzuki, who obviously like runs shit, right? And it he's an like, incredible character. Incredible. And like just has the burden of these, you know, insane artists to carry yeah. with him. And he's uh, having like yeah, a production meeting. He's having like a merchandise. I forget yeah. what it. it's a merchandise. Yeah. And they're it's talking. It's a merchandise spotlight. And then you see Miyazaki like walk by and sort of go like, Sort of waves his hands and then walks on. It's like he's never going to walk into that. He doesn't want to be in that meeting. Right. Ever. Right. Even though he's nominally like the founder. He understands that that pays the bills. Right. But it is crazy. You mentioned the apron. Love that apron. He's literally wearing it. Yeah. Every single moment. His routine, as shown in this film, is he wakes up in his nice but not, you know, gigantic, you know, nice-sized house. That was the thing I had always heard about why he was never going to make a streaming deal. was like no amount of money matters to him. He has a nice house. He's got a nice house. That's it. But like the the key word was nice. Not like he already owns a mansion. It was like he has a modest home that he enjoys. It seems like his home, which seems like a very nice place, is, is valued partly because he can get up. Uh huh. He can walk to Ghibli. The whole wearing thing. his apron. Yep. He can walk by the nursery where the the staffers' kids are being nurseried, mm-hmm. and he can wave to them. Yes. Then he can go to his desk and he can draw pictures of airplanes and you know think about life. Doesn't he say he has a massage brush that is part of his routine? And we never see it. He outlines his whole day. Yeah. It's very simple. And it his is day is so simple day. that massage brush gets uh, above the title billing. You never see him a cornerstone of his. <laughs> Right? I'm trying to think. I mean, there's the, the famous Spirited Away DVD extra where he makes ramen for everyone. Yeah, I feel but like... But, like, I don't think you see you him see eat him much. cook at home? Do you? I guess I, one I time like you, you do. do. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if you see him eat. It's food. like, you know, the DeFara pizza guy, Dominic DeMarco? <sighs> one of the all Legend. In my opinion, the greatest New Yorker alive. Um, it's a really good argument. Like, you, I think it was New York Magazine. One of those places used to have one of those sort of yeah. 20 questions where the questions are always the same. And one of them was like, who's the best New Yorker? And yeah. I was like, if they ever asked me, it's Dom DeMarco. I think that's a great, that's a great choice. You know, and he's old and he spends all day making pizzas in his rat infested, beautiful, uh, wonderful pizza place. Uh, and then like, apparently for dinner, he has like a slice of pizza and a glass of wine. Yeah. I feel like that's that's what you want to strive for. Right? We're being an old guy. Where you're like, I don't Ooh. need much anymore. I kind of know what you're talking about. Remind me, and for okay. any of the listeners you who don't what? know who you're talking oh, about, he, he, he runs is, a Defara Pizza. It's a famous. I want to unpack uh, this. Yeah, uh, he is kind of the American Miyazaki. Sure, right. It's like I simplicity. Like, I was watching this. And I was trying to think, like, who else is like this in their field? Um, so just to clarify, you're right for listeners who wouldn't know. It's like a place in Brooklyn, deep in Brooklyn Midwood. It's been around forever. Brooklyn. It's been around since the 70s. It's this guy, Dom DeMarco. It's on like the it's Avenue a, Q stop on the X train. <laughs> it's on the Avenue J stop on the Q train. Okay, actually. but that's a funny joke. It was a funny joke. Thank you. Um, and uh, he uh, like, you know, it's a, it looks like just a regular old slice joint. He's had it for like 60 years? It's since the se- early 70s, I think. So, you know, 50-ish okay. years. 
And um, he makes pizzas. He's the only one. Although now I think he's old enough that now I think his kids do yes. now assist. Yes. Um, because it used to just be him and his kids would just take the orders. For a very long time, like up until five years ago, he did literally He did everything. everything. He's got these he hands the dough himself. that are like oven mitts because they have this incredibly hot oven, which he says is like the secret to his success. Yeah. And he's just pulling them out with his hands. He pulls them out with his bare hands. Every pizza pie. He, he made everyone himself. He ordered the ingredients himself. He's got the it used basil to be, in the window, you know. It used to be like, uh, you know, they'd make like one or two slice pies a day. And so however many slices come out of that pie, that's the single slices they sell. And otherwise, you got to buy a full it's, pie. It's quite expensive. It always has been, quote unquote, but it overpriced. Goes but yeah. it's great. It, it is truly the single best thing I've ever tasted. It's a fun experience too, even though you usually have to wait a while and like that's sort of part of the whole, you know, process. Very often there's like a line around the block. And you're watching this not, old man I think is in his 80s at this point. I think his late and he's 80s. he's shuffling around. I mean, the square pie as well if you ever want to, you know, so good. Yeah. And then when the pizza's almost done, he'll kind of look up at you and be like, pizza you know and you're like yeah and he takes out the basil and he like snips it sort of roughly you with know scissors with scissors to sort of like yeah uh, finish it off yeah anyway so yeah and he always has an apron much like he always has an apron. Son. he like used to work seven days a week yeah he uh, then started taking like, one day off i think it's open like five days a week at this yeah point. yeah it's close and, like Monday, Tuesday. I mean, I think his son-in-law sort of followed him a couple of his kids have followed him he has other people working now off of his recipe, they franchised, so now they have a couple other locations. It's yeah. still an incredible recipe, but there was something to the fact that there it was this one guy. What a guy. For about 50 years. He's got his little hat. Made every single pie himself. Right. Almost never took a day off. I mean, literally, you could count on two hands the times he had taken days off within decades. And uh, he, he said that every night... He gets... Um, a slice of pizza and a glass of wine for dinner. He, he makes himself one last pie right. for the day. Right. And then he has some pizza and a glass of wine to make sure that it's still good. And he has told himself the moment the pie has dipped in quality is the moment he retires. It reminds me of kind of how Bourdain always talked about street food sure. vendors yes. as well. People who have spent 20, 30, 40 years mm -hmm. making Doing the same one thing. Right. dish right. Yep. and perfecting. Exacting. That's, that's his thing. Yeah. Uh, 100%. It's, it's like this guy perfected pizza, and that's his only goal his is to perfect pizza. And he has sort of very reluctantly by his children been pulled into the 21st century. Yeah, once. Where they're like, you're going to die at some point. I mean, I'm sure they're not phrasing it to him that way unless they, they are, are. Miyazaki-esque. But they're sort of like, we need to like create a future for this because we don't want your legacy and your reputation right. and your there recipe now, to die with you. There's now these sort of franchise locations. There's a couple of them. I think there's one in Vegas. There is. They're not as good. There's another one. I mean, they're still excellent. They're pretty good. You're like, this um, is a great recipe for pizza versus um, this being the best thing I've ever put in my mouth. He tried to open, or they tried, someone tried to open a sandwich shop uh, once that was around the corner. Yeah. That was pretty good. But it didn't make it. They owned like MD the kitchen. other. They owned yeah. like the next door. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Miyazaki. It, it is that thing though. And he is like very famously a man of few words. He's uh, like, I sure. just make the pizza. Right, right. You know? And Miyazaki has that same sort of like put on the apron, sit at my desk. It's kind of incredible how it's just like a little David's miming. Miyazaki hunched over, etching, drawing, yeah. scribbling. Uh but he's just got a little desk in the corner of the room. 
Yep. He's got no executive office. Not that I expected that he would have some big, like, fucking... No, right, but he's very Roman much... Roman Roy, in the, yeah. He's in the bullpen with the other animators. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone's sort of, like, afraid of him, but he's there it's working mostly as women. hard as anybody. Very yes. noticeably mostly women. Yes. Yes. I would say. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, there's this sort of sidekick slash, I mean, I guess is one of the lead animators is sing next to him. Yes. And early on he like gives her what I imagine is like the highest praise you could ever receive where he's like, she's, she's a good animator or something like yeah. that. Right. You remember that? She's his favorite. What's, what's her name? It's so, her name is so perfect too. I don't remember. Um, but yes, he keeps on talking about how fond he is of her and, and, and he her, presided and over so. her wedding. Right. <laughs> And you find out at the end, in somewhat of a twist, that she's three months pregnant. Yes. And she has told everyone else. Right. Suzuki is like, yeah, she didn't want to tell you until it was like, done. I'm the last to know. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and mostly the film is just about them finishing The Wind Rises. Right. There's no dramatic problems. No. This isn't like the great, of course, film, Ghosts of the Abyss, in which they find out that 9-11 happens halfway through or anything like that. What a wild movie. This <laughs> is a wild-ass movie. We should go back and watch Ghosts of the Abyss again. <laughs> Do a director's commentary. Yeah. Uh, I believe Alien to the Deep is going to be on Disney+. Plus. So Really? But not Ghosts of the Abyss? I think Ghosts of the Abyss might not be Disney. It might be Paramount. I think it's Disney. Well, but, it's, but it was... Uh... I think they're both Disney because... I remember there being a combo 3D right, Blu-ray set, so I don't which I'm realizing I, I should own. I don't know. I don't know. Disney was kind of the only studio doing 3D at that moment. Right. Um, so, anyway, there's nothing like that. The most dramatic plot moment, I would say. Yeah, yeah I just want to clarify. Yes, there's nothing like that. 9-11 does not happen in this movie that is Although set. There is. You, said that you hear that radio address from the, the, the Japanese prime minister of the time where he's Talking about the aftermath of the Fukushima disaster. Mm -hmm. So there are things yeah. in the air that are clearly sort of like on their minds. Yes. And because they're making the wind rises, they will occasionally discuss like the war and the morality of this person that they're making a movie about and things like that. Right. Yeah. But then the I would say the most dramatic moment is that Miyazaki gets a letter from a neighbor of his when he was a young child during the Second World War. When he was taken in by another family. When right? he was evacuated. Yeah, right. And this man who is older than Miyazaki, so probably in his late 70s, is like... His name is Jojo Rabbit. Is, <laughs> is relating a story of like, we were bombed and my house was burned down and we went to your house and no one was there and we were sitting there and then your dad came and gave us chocolate and I remember this very fondly and I wish to like tell you of it. Uh, yes. And Miyazaki is like, He's just staggered by this letter and keeps thinking about it and discussing it and like wonders how to respond to it. That's the big dramatic thing in this movie. And at the end, he responds to the letter, but he can't even bear to read it himself. So right. the director of the documentary reads it. Correct. And like, I just, I feel like people in, uh, people making a similar kind of movie mm -hmm. about a, a director mm -hmm. might find that to be like, oh, that's a little inconsequent like we don't need that right sure. like, let's not put that in the movie whereas uh sonata is like this will be this will be the sort of moral uh, centerpiece of the well film. i also relate because i take years to respond to emails <laughs> because of self-inflicted pressure to make it perfect yeah but it is that thing of just like he has in a way narrowed his life to the essentials yes 100%. Of, of the things that are um fulfilling to him 
Um, yes. You, he feels either gives value to the world or gives him value. He, he is of, married, but you don't see his wife. Is his wife not the woman at the end? I think so. I mean, that is a sliver of, you see yeah, her you right see her for a, a second. T- and there's yeah. a scene where they're reading the newspaper. Oh yeah, that's right. All right. But you barely see over, You wife, barely right. see her. She speaks in that scene. Because there's that scene right at the end, yes, where he's like, she she was like, when's it going to be done? Like, you know, right. he's like joking about right. her. She appears a little bit at the end. Right. At one point, the, the filmmaker asks him, like, so how did you know your wife was the one? And he was like, what do you mean? <laughs> this is and such she was a like, weird part. What made you realize that you want to be with her? And he was like, I married her because that is what you do. It had to be done. And then he, and then she asks him follow up question. He's like, "That's the secret of life. I can't reveal it." Or yeah. like, he just doesn't have an answer. This is the thing right. you do. You marry someone. It feels like it's too too personal a question for Miyazaki. There's just some sort of like wall you. But can't in the reach slivers, you see of the two of them together. They seem very happy and warm together. It's not like this I mean, is some been weird marriage for of convenience. Fifty years, like you'd yeah, a hundred percent. Well, there are people who are married for fifty years. That's and true, and they live separate lives and all that. Yeah, no, I know, but uh, you know, and also he, I mean, Wind Rises is a very warm movie about a marriage in a way too. So yes, um, I don't know. Maybe he's. You also see his I'm saying son. They're not the Lockhorns. No, they're not the Lockhorns. I mean, you know, they're not as funny as the Lockhorns, if that's what you mean. Do you know that when I was little, you there's no reason you would know this. When I was little, I used to think the Lockhorns was called the comics. Okay. Because why? Because it was I don't like, know. was it at the top of your funny pages and it said like comics, like, and the Lockhorns was Maybe. Right below I mean, this is Remember before- the Lockhorns? No. It's one of those great. Comics, you know the funny pages. It'd right? be a one panel, like it's a usually a one circus. panel. It's a square. A you, got, you, square. you got um, you got this man, Mister Lockhorn, yeah. and this lady, Mrs. Lockhorn. They're married to each other, and they both think that the other one sucks shit. I guess I kind of remember this. <laughs> they fucking hate it. <laughs> it's yeah. like basically she's like, I made you dinner, and he's like, Well, fuck you. Yeah, I want a divorce. Like that's that's sort of the humor level. This was before I could read, and the, when the newspaper would arrive, I would tell my father, "Can you read me the comics?" Right, and he would know that means I have to. Read aloud a Lockhorn. Well, you don't have to read a Lockhorn. So would he just make it up? No, because to me, that was the comics. Oh, you you just wanted the Lockhorns? And then after that, I'd be like, let me read these other things. But the comics to me meant the Lockhorns. That is really weird. And he would read it to me and I would go, I don't get it. Right. It wasn't like I loved the Lockhorns. I'd be like, what's the joke there? And then I'd, I'd read Peanuts and I'd be like, this shit rules. Yeah. Why isn't this the comics? I was a far side guy. Well, that makes and so much sense. I'm mentioning Farside because uh, what do you guys think about the new apparent, like apparently there's a new Farside. Is it going to happen or is it, is that confirmed or not? I mean, I just sort of saw a lot I of stuff on social media. There's about still been a lot, of, a lot of business around the Farside again, but then it seemed like it's just that he digitized it and made a website. Well, is there new stuff going to happen? On the website, the website was updated She's with a new online era of a far, of the Far Side is coming. I think the era is just Far Side has been Possibly. added to HBO Max. But, <laughs> uh, I don't know. We'll see. We'll find out. Anyway, I mean, generally into it. One of those things where I'm like, does his sense of humor and perspective belong where it you know was? Like, I love that stuff, but do yeah. I need him talking about now? But maybe I do. I always love the far side. He also, he falls in that weird category too of him and, um, uh, why am I forgetting his name now? But Calvin and Hobbes. Sure. Uh, where they both. Jim something. It's not Jim. Okay, great. I want to say Roger, but it's not. 
Um, I, I everyone's know. yelling at me right now. Everyone's <laughs> listening to this podcast. What was your question? Sorry. The writer Calvin, Calvin Bill Watterson. Oh, Bill oh, Watterson. Yeah. Jesus Christ. I'm sorry. I wasn't listening. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> I wasn't interested in what you were saying. <laughs> that is something. I got an email popped up. Anyway, go on. Yeah. Anything good? I got to tell you, pretty regular. Uh, what Those two guys have a weird sort of um, integrity that is usually lacking in American art where they were That's just true. like, I'm done. Yeah, you, most of the funny pages, they just run forever. And, right. you know, your cute comic about uh, like life in an office yeah. for a Gen Xer in a cubicle culture will turn into some weird like Trump screed about being an alpha male or whatever. But it's, David, it's such a good strap. I Look, when I was a kid, it, I, I loved Dilbert. It makes so much sense that he has such an air of superiority because the strip is <laughs> right. so... It's a cornerstone of American humor. I haven't been following what's been going on with Dilbert. You're saying he's like Republican Scott Adam, oh, oh, Republican oh. is it would be a kind and gentle way to yes, describe no, he whatever is not happened a Republican. to him. No, he turned into just sort of a weird kind of testosterone red pill guy, right? Yes. Like, Oof. I don't know. Wow. You know, and kind of one of those, like, kings of, like, debate me, bro, Twitter uh, attitudes, right. Right? right? He's just all the time, he's like, well, I'm intellectually superior to you, and, like, here's how I prove it. Also, I have big muscles. That's his big thing, that he's, like, jacked and 60, and he's smarter than everybody, and he knows better because he made Dilbert. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway. Isn't there a rumor that his house is in the shape of Dilbert's head? <laughs> there is a house in the shape of Dilbert's head? his house is... Is it? In the shape of Dilbert's head. Okay. I think it's maybe true. And if it's not true, I want it to be true. Because I like this idea of this guy living... In a cartoon true. head house. I mean, it'd be funny. Saying, I'm clearly the got most a good head. intelligent man alive. Yeah. I mean, his head kind of looks like a castle. It's yeah. got little crenellation. Right. I think that's, yes. I always liked... Um, He's got the two blank eyes that look uh, like portholes. Wally. I don't know. I'm trying to remember other Dilbert characters. Wally? Dogbert. Catbert. Well, Dogbert and Catbert. And the boss, of course. The pointy-haired boss. Yeah, who's yeah. the guy with the tie going up? That's that's Dilbert. <laughs> Dilbert's the one with the tie going up. Oh, then who's Wally? Wally's like the other one. He's got glasses. He's bald. Oh, yeah. He's his co-worker. And then there's, I think, Alice, the one yeah. with the triangle. Remember the, the Larry Charles cartoon? Yeah, I kind of like the cartoon. I think that was funny in I, my I memory. I think it was funny. Yeah, I mean, it was a long time ago now. I don't know. Catbert, we said him already. Ratbert, I think. Jeez. I think it was a like a dinosaur. Oh, there was. Anyway, fuck I'm Dilbert. Not a, yeah, fuck Dilbert. Dilbert's a piece of shit. <laughs> Dilbert's a cuck. I don't know. Why are we talking about this in our Miyazaki episode? Well, because we were talking about... I think Miyazaki's ever read strips. Dilbert. Uh, yeah, he does. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, he gets it. He has Life a unique in a insight into <laughs> The spiritual crisis suffered by Dilbert is one suffered by many a person in the 21st century. A day in the office eats at us all equally. <laughs> he has that line very early on where he's like, I am not a 21st century person. Like he's like, I'm a man of the 21st, 20th century. I do not want to deal with the 21st century. But I also love how sort of... Dilbert, by the way. I'm Dilbert that. says <laughs> that. Yes. And then his tie goes up into his face. <laughs> I, I love how flummoxed he is by the 20th century, too. Like, he keeps on talking about the confusion, his confusion around how Japan acted in, like, different decades. Sure. You know? Yeah. His parents' generation. Like, he's mm -hmm. sort of just so 
confounded by the totality of human behavior. Well, it's one thing. That's why, I'm, right, the, the letter that becomes this weird central thing. Yeah. Right, that's sort of him rec- thinking about his own father, and he's like, well, me and my father used to fight about, you know, I would call him a war profiteer because he sold airplane parts. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he's, I mean, he's like, he's kind of referring to a more radical past of his, right? Sure. You also see that... Um, image of him as a union guy. He was like yes. part of the union when he yeah. worked at Toe Animation, I think. Mm-hmm. And so he sort of has this retrospective. Yeah, you know, oh yeah, you know, I am. I was, I was a little more jacked up back then. But yeah. then also he's like, but my father did this good thing and this is very interesting for me to consider. Like, this sort of selfless thing my dad Not did. only that, but it's like a moment of a very like intimate kindness that it seems like he did not experience with his own father right. very often. Right. exactly. And because it was directed at another child, right. that's the kind of thing that makes you reevaluate, like, why, why isn't my dad giving me chocolate? Right. Uh, not that it was just the chocolate, although chocolate sounded pretty tight. Chocolate's pretty good. I love a yeah, chocolate. Big fan. And there's that. And then he has that, there's that shot. Sometimes they'll insert shots from The Wind Rises where the guy has the two chocolate cakes. Yeah, it's kind of incredible. Uh, I, I just still, we recorded our Win Rises episode 15 years ago. Right, and you were having a goddamn meltdown during it. You were like, what is life? What is existence? Well, I want to talk about that again. Okay, uh, right. uh, well, because this this thing reopened a lot of those wounds. Mm. But um, uh, we, I, I was just sort of like so confounded by the fact that people thought this film was pro-war. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, and and he talks so explicitly in this movie. Right. I mean, there's that scene where he like shows the storyboards to the producer whose mm-hmm. name I'm forgetting. Suzuki? Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, it's uh it's pretty strongly anti war. Right. And Miyazaki's like, I know, I think I have to do it though. And there's like they're concerned yeah. no, they that are. it's gonna be too political. The, the later, very at the end scene where they're showing um, that he gave interviews, which he did at the time of like we should Japan has a you know um, peace essentially written into its constitution. They're not allowed to declare war. Yeah, and you know he gave an interview where he was like, "We must keep this because yeah. it's it's an ongoing debate in Japan. Maybe we should change our constitution, right?" Like, mm-hmm. um, and and they're reading the new headlines with they're like, "Oh, this could hurt the film," but you know, I think it was important. Sure. Like, so yeah, again. But it's one of those himself out there. Yeah, but it's one of those things where it's like I don't understand if it's just that American audiences wanted a didactic explanation that uh, Japan's collaboration with Germany was bad. Right. Which it, the film is so clearly saying. I mean, the whole Werner Herzog character is like, you know, the the one sort of good German who sure. understands the evil of what's happening around him. And Miyazaki says it so clearly in this movie, which is just like, he just loves planes. And unfortunately. There's that moment, right, where he says, like, "Ah, they're just so cool, though. (laughs) But but he's he's sort of like, what a dramatic irony. Yeah, right. That this man who has no interest in war. He loves planes. He loves a thing that ultimately will be used for war. Right. Which is the thing he's interested in. And it's like, um, especially in a year with fucking like Jojo Rabbit and a hidden life. Mm. You know, where it's like you got two movies that are about, and I haven't seen Hidden Life yet. It's good. But two movies that are about like individual Germans. Sure. Who, you know, do not agree with their country's actions. Right. In the time of World War II. Right. And th- this film is purposefully messier because it's about someone who is uh, not pro-war. 
but his art form is something that can literally be weaponized, yeah. which is also a thing that, like, Miyazaki – I mean, this is the part that, like, destroyed me the most, mm. where he's talking about, like – I mean, I feel stupid for, like, making movies. Right. Like, I make movies because they are a pure and beautiful thing for me, and I'm right. obsessed with them, but, like, I don't think they accomplish any good. Right. I think mostly they're pretty much bad now. <laughs> I used to think there was a purity to this art form. It, like, feels foolish. I want to see if I can pull up the exact scene okay. because the way he words it is just, like, so cutting. But that's the thing that broke me watching Wind Rises is it's, like, yes, there's, like, a larger extreme example. We talked about example. this on the episode. I remember this. Right. right. Yeah. And for me, I, like, you know, the Miyazaki miniseries, A, in a certain way, these are uh, tough films to watch in the way that we watch them. Right. Where it's, like, you're going through his entire life in a condensed period of time. Right. You know, mostly watching his movies, spending this much time thinking about him, it's pretty all-consuming. And at the time we were doing the miniseries, I was also a pretty raw nerve mm -hmm. because of the tick cancellation, mm -hmm. which I was super fucking depressed about. Yeah. And less the end of that specific job and more my feeling of, like, incredible uh, confusion and fear about, like, what the fuck— uh, can I possibly do in this industry now? Well, because you guys are also obsessed with trajectories, and totally. I know you, and I, I know that you're you're having this moment of now reassessing. I'm having one of those moments that we tend to talk about on the podcast, right? Yes. So I'm you're, trying to figure out what the fuck I'm yeah, doing. Where, where, where do I point myself? And what scares me is I look around, and it's not even about like boohoo job prospect shit. It's not me complaining about not getting hired for stuff. I look around, I'm like, I don't know what to do with this landscape. Right. I think in much of the way that what Miyazaki— What would satisfy? What would feel worthwhile or important or— All, all of that. Those things. Right. You know, um, uh, to a certain degree, I've been very lucky that I have gotten to accomplish a lot of the things that existed as, like, big artistic dreams of mine. Yeah. Whether or not the things ended up becoming successful or, uh, you know, surviving— or even being seen by people. Like, in terms of the actual, like, the challenge of the work, I've gotten to do a lot of the things I wanted to do, which I, I've been uh, incredibly uh, spoiled in that sense. Um, and so, like, that list is diminished, and I look around now, and it's like, well, those were the things I had as, like, 20-year goals. And I somehow accomplished a lot of them in, like, 10 years. And now what do I want to be challenged by? And I look around at the landscape, and I'm like, I don't know if the things that I would want to do the most are even possible to do today. You know? I, I don't know if the landscape exists. Uh, not to be oblique about it, because it's hard to, like, verbalize some of it, but even just in terms of what gets made and how it gets made. Yeah. How it gets made is so much of it. Like, watching the way that Miyazaki is just like, I'm doing the whole storyboard myself. I don't have a script. No one can read it. People get drips and drabs. And then when I'm finally done... I hand the storyboard to my producer and friend of 40 years, and right. he sits down and reads it and goes like, okay. Right. You know, and I do it when I do it. It's done when i done. That uh, It's done when i done. Jeez. That thing that he says when they, like, uh, show the archival video of them founding the, uh, the Ghibli um, studios, the physical space, being able yes. to buy the space and, yeah. and build the company and all of that, when he sort of says, like, you know— if you are here for long-term job security, you are in the wrong place. The only reason for you to be here is because you want to do the work and that's what's satisfying to you, right. 
most companies are just a conduit for money, and I'm not interested. Conduit in that. for money, yeah. Conduit There's, for money is incredible. I, mean, I think in Japan, especially, you can tell like they are a little more. They're they're like a little unusual. Like those old pictures of them, they kind of look cool. Yes. They got like the collar, you know, no, not button downs, like you know, and like they dress a little. Because I think in Japan, still, even though it's a changing country, like every country. There is that expectation of like get a job at a good company and you can work your way up and like that's yeah. very much like a sort of system we can still subscribe to. Right. And he seems to be laying out like that's eh, not really how we're gonna do like that's not what this is. He's like, doing no, Defara. This is not like a apprenticeship, you know, up to the boss. You know, right. you're not gonna get a corner office or whatever. Right. Um because because the other thing they say is I mean, there's like that that scene where he sort of like walks by where they're doing the merchandise, and we've talked about this in other episodes, but that they like he was so resistant to merchandise for a while. He realized it was necessary at a certain point and only like acquiesced when he felt like the actual craftsmanship of the product was so undeniable that he had to respect that they were putting the same level into the merchandise that he does into his own work. Right. Um, but that they cap how much merchandise they can sell per year. And that like in a year like this where you have their two big directors like deep into – trying to make their next and possibly final films with no end in sight, you know, years over schedule, that they need to sell that stuff to keep the lights on. But that part of the design of the company is it doesn't have to grow every year. We don't have to, like, expand with our successes. We need to be able to have a year where we don't make a movie and don't make that much money and it doesn't bankrupt us. That our overhead is so low. That the success of one film can like carry us for five years or whatever, you know. Uh-huh. Um, it is kind of incredible uh, how much he doesn't care about anything other than the purity of whatever he's trying to say in the movie he's working on at that moment. You know that scene that's incredible where um, it's like a bunch of the animators sitting around their desk, and I assume one of like the supervising animators is like giving them notes, and then he walks by right. and goes like. Uh, the woman must not. He's giving a specific note about how she sort of is giving a side eye. She's like looking to the side yes. and turning her head. Yeah, and, and he's he like, it makes her look disdainful in a way that like a woman would not have behaved in this era. Like and, it's too modern. And and also it's just not the type of film we're making and it's not who this character is. Right. And then it's also tied to the whole thing. I didn't like, I, I guess you told me this, but I didn't fully process the weirdness of him hiring Anno to. It's. I believe um, we talk about it actually on the House Movie Podcast yeah, episode. Yeah, because Ehrlich was all yeah. in on that performance. Right, right. But, it's, but I mean, it's, uh, watching that whole thing unfold is fantastic. It's insane. Because Anna worked with him, I believe, it's on Nausicaa, right? Yes. And, and, um, he did the monster. Yes. And so they, you know, they have a long-standing relationship. But this and then is he a does huge Evangelion figure in and directs Shin Godzilla. Right. Uh, so he is, you know, certainly busy and important right you right. know and they're just there's that scene where they're like well what should the guy sound like and Miyazaki has this whole concept of like he's conserving all his energy to use artistically and designing like so he, yeah. he would be clipped and he would be businesslike and he would not speak you know he would speak in this very precise way exactly but the, it's that scene and then where someone's like, like what if we do Anno and Miyazaki's like what that's interesting you know like he keeps being like oh ooh, ooh. he like can't let it go it's even funnier than that because, I can't do it I mean right. it's so funny but, to watch him behave that way they give him the list and he's like this is what this character needs to be and he it's he's like talking on such like deep terms right about the elements that are important to this character and the things that would betray the character and then the producer says like so it, it almost feels like you want a non-actor right you want a non-actor right exactly 
Because he says, like, none of these people on this list can do that. Right. Uh, and then they're like, uh, like, yeah. what do you want? And he's like, like, almost if it was someone who, like, sounded like Anno. Like, they don't even say, what if you cast Anno? Right. They're like, like, someone who ha- sounds like him. And he's like, Anno does have a weird voice. Right. And, and then he just keeps on going. Like, and then just that, like, where Miyazaki calls him, right? Yeah. And Anno's like, well, how can I refuse? You are Miyazaki, The of producer course. calls him the and is like, this him. is going to sound crazy. Yeah, right, right. In the car. As you know, Miyazaki is working on, Miyasan is working on The Wind Rises, and he wants you to be the lead character. Right. Yeah. And then just, it's very sweet watching him record, Miyazaki in the booth. How much he loves him that he was He loves like, him, but also like what Miyazaki loving something looks like. Yes. Where he looks just like a little amused, yeah. basically. Uh, but uh, it's clearly overwhelming to him. Uh, other things I want to speed around. Yeah, exactly. There are some few things. That, that was definitely something. At the end of the screening when he says, uh, just, this is the first time I ever no, cried at one of my own movies. No, I have to lay this out. Please. They screen the movie in a big screening room. Yeah. It looks like the whole staff is it's there. Finished. It's probably a couple hundred people. All of Jesus. He is sitting just in the middle. He's not on an aisle. He gets up. He's already announced at this point that he's going to retire. Yeah, although his statement is very clear that he's not actually going to retire. Okay. You know, because it's right. It's like, I plan to retire in the next 10 years. And I'm yeah. like, motherfucker, you're like in your 70s. Uh-huh. But anyway, he's sitting, not even on an aisle, gets up with his umbrella. Yeah. Walks out, like sort of shuffles between the people mm-hmm. in front of the, you know, stands in front and goes like, like, speech, 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 <laughs> right. speech. Uh, and he's like, this is embarrassing to say, but I've never cried at one of my own movies before. Thank you. And then walks, walks back. Away. No, walks back, sits back down, like in uh-huh. the chair. And then Suzuki's like, all right, everyone, we can go. And then everyone leaves. Like, he's not so presumptuous to think that'll end it. Totally. He's like, maybe someone else wants to stand up. I don't know. That was yeah. just my thought. Any, anything else director. anyone wants to share? Um, is that I was moved to tears. You also see him sort of being moved to tears when they're doing the voiceovers yes. at one point. You can see, yeah. Yes. Um, I love Miyazaki. I know. I, I mean, David, thank you again Stan. for suggesting yeah. this. Oh, I mean, I know Griffin's idea. I know Griffin's idea. But I mean, we talked about him. Yeah, I mean, look. Your it, guidance through this, I mean, I, oh, I am 100% I a now Miyazaki fan. Yeah, and it was a weird miniseries. I mean, I feel like. Uh, we did him fast. We did him fast. Yeah. <clears throat> I was going through shit, uh, which clashed, not clashed with, but was like a weird. Um, <clears throat> Excuse me. Wow, he's coughing. Um, I, I th- my my uh, career uh, anxiety uh, formed a, a weird uh, mm. chemistry with mm-hmm. these movies, which are so much about doing the work and focusing on like the purity of life mm. and accepting the messiness and the right. hopelessness of it all, in spite of the beauty that surrounds you. Yeah, like what? Right. Yeah, right. He's a weird mix for you for that. It's a weird mix for all of that, mm. um, and I also like you know. It's a different uh, a culture than we've ever tackled in in such depth on this show, sustained for an entire miniseries. And, like, it's it's a very different sort of, like, all the context stuff that we love. His career functions very differently. It's about one man well, being sort of steadfast. Right. Those are some of the things I want to talk Like, that scene, scene, whatever, yeah. the clip of Suzuki giving the press conference. Yes. Where he's sort of like, there's a bunch of reporters. He's like, look, I mean... You know, Takahata, what can I say? The guy's fucking insane. He's yeah. never going to finish. I don't think he wants to finish. And he's like, anyway, what Miyazaki's going for, and I think this is really raising a lot of stuff for him personally. Yeah. He's talking, and I'm just comparing that to like yeah, Kevin Feige giving his, right. you know, his slideshows of right. like the next Marvel. Imagine if Kevin Feige just came out and was like, 
Yeah, so I mean, what's fucking me up about Thor four is this, you know, yeah. like and he's just like sitting with a bunch of guys and having right. a convo. It, it is just so like, weird. I had that same thought. Like, no, I, how could he be so, so modest? Right. Yeah, right, right. But it also just feels like he's like, like a SoundCloud rapper or something. <laughs> right. it's going just like, in a I, room. Was, I was feeling this last week, and here's yeah. my new album, and this is what it's about. Right. You know? Yeah. It's like kind of astounding how away from the machinery he is. But not just like, oh, he's like the creative guy and there are money people around him, but that the people around him sort of follow in his philosophy yes. and do and the bare minimum any... of businessy right. stuff. Exactly. Because exactly. even the whole thing with the NTV guy, yeah. where they're like, this is our relationship. NTV is the only network where Miyazaki and Ghibli films play. Do you know why? Because this man is like, and then he's like, can I call it a friend? Is it friendship? And the guy's like, yeah, I think it is. And he's like, he comes over here every single night. And sits here and talks to us. And we don't talk about business. We talk about anything else in life. Sounds nice. And eventually we get to talking about family. And then our families become friends. And then Miyazaki goes on a trip to his cabin. And his daughter in that trip, on that in that cabin, was the inspiration for Spirited Away. And everyone in the room gasps. That's and, great. And he's just sort of like, sometimes you got to invest 10 years in you like a relationship. A seed of creativity. You got to trust people. You don't know where the things are going to come from. You just got to do the work. A couple other things. There's that scene with Goro Miyazaki, his son. Yes. Who has, he's, he's kind of aggro. And he's like, I didn't want to do this. I never wanted to be an animator. It's a very interesting thing to include. I, I feel this like onus to make another film yeah. because if I don't, these people might not have work. Right. But right. you have to understand when I decide whether or not to make a film, I'm fighting against the fact that this isn't what I want to do. And I didn't, it's <laughs> I nuts. didn't think I'd end up here. Uh, so you got that. Yes. And then there's this other thing I just wanted, this incredible ending, probably the best movie ending of all time, uh-huh. where Miyazaki, they're doing the press conference and he's like, look out the window. Look at these roofs. Look at that guy. He doesn't know we're watching him. And then he imagines like, well, it's you could jump across the roof. really use clips from his And then movies. they do this montage. I think Emily mentioned it on one of our yes. episodes. Of them, of all the jumping across the roofs and running yeah. and things like that. And I mean, it should reduce you to rubble. It's just incredible. Yeah. yeah. And then, but then the pure ending, my friend, feels like a shot at a Miyazaki where it's just him very slowly walking out of the studio with yes. his wife. Uh, there's also a midway through, which could have been the ending, that thing where I think I mentioned where he's like, you know, it, uh, I know how it will end. You're like, it will all be over soon. Think, okay, yes, Ghibli thank you. is a I name I got from that. an airplane. Right. Like, they said, does the future of the company not worry you? And he goes, I know what the future is. It will end. Right, it will this end. This place will shut down. The name means nothing. The name means nothing. How pretty. He's like staring out into right. the garden, yeah. I also love how much he talks about, like, he loves the Zero plane so much. Yes. And he doesn't want to draw it himself because he feels like he can't do it. But he's <laughs> noting everyone to death because it doesn't look like what it... Right, and everyone like else was like, like, oh, I thought it was that he's being a taskmaster. Right. But in fact, he can't do it. Right. Right, even he cannot do it. And this it. is like an impossible task to try to draw the thing in his brain that he can't explain and that he can't draw himself. Right. And then every time they go back to him, they're like, so it's you just love zeros that much? He's like, I don't like zeros. I don't like them. I, it's not that I like them. And it feels like a 12-year-old denying he has a crush on someone. <laughs> Like every time he, it's the one time he starts to feel a little riled up in the entire movie where he's like, it's not that I like them. I just, you know, it's, it's, it's what the movie demands. Shut the fuck up. Leave me alone. I don't like zeros. Did we really not do a list? All right. Let's do our lists. If we haven't done lists. It's going to be tough. It's going to be tough? Yeah. It's a tough list. Oh yeah. I mean, my list is ridiculous anyway, because I like them all. 
But uh, and if and, and if if it is in the other episode, then just cut this shit out. I guess I don't okay. know. Um. Anyway, sorry, I can't remember. I could have sworn we did it, but maybe I'm just uh, conflating I'm some other list making. Something we didn't mention on mic. Mm. No friggin' computers. Oh yeah, yeah. Ben and oh, I yeah. were talking about that. It is so. It's so um, shocking to see an it, office with no computers. It's kind of incredible. He doesn't even have like a traditional animator work exactly. desk. He like, doesn't have that slanted desk with the light box yeah. underneath and all that sort of shit. Yeah. And you just like you watching him do the thing where he like keeps lifting the page yeah. back up. It's so. Yeah, look, we can fetishize this kind of like hand hell, like, you know, yeah. this, you know, uh, this old fashioned stuff, but it is, it's hard not to fetishize it. And look, at a certain point, they hand it off, they scan it in, they use caps to color it and right. clean up and all that sort of, of stuff. Course, in terms right, of what right. he's doing, there, there's like, it's a completely analog office, it seems like. You barely see electronic it devices. It must be so anywhere around. fucking, we've talked about this before, but to make an animated film. And for to be drawn all that shit, and yeah. for so long to not know yeah. what it's gonna look like, yeah, you know, like at least with a movie, you can look at your dailies, you can see what you're getting, right? Yeah. It's not gonna be the full picture. It's one of the many things that scared me off of being an animator when I thought about going down that path. When I started actually doing it, when I like made a couple of animated shorts myself and was like studying it, I I just that like, you know, it's like um uh. Soderbergh always says that, like, filmmaking is, like, it, it feels like doing a Syrah painting mm. where you're, like, spending this much time looking at one singular, like, dot right. made by a brush on a canvas. And you have to, in your mind, put together what that dot is going to do in conjunction with all the other dots. So do um, Like writing an orchestra. Sure. You don't know what it's going to sound like until it gets put up. And all the instruments and all the players yes, are playing. But filmmaking is so bizarre because you don't even have that moment where they're all playing at the same time because you're doing all the pieces completely separate, jumbled out of order in a way that doesn't make sense. And then you hope that when you edit them all together, yeah. it amounts to something greater. You know, I mean, and and from every element, like the performances, there are performances that on a scene-by-scene basics, basis could look perfect that when you cut together don't work and vice versa. Um, it's a very bizarre thing. All of this is overwhelming. I'm glad we did Miyazaki. I'm very excited to have like um watched all these films and to be able to watch them again, yeah. like revisit them. I feel yeah. like I've barely sort of grappled with them and him. They're very lovely to rewatch. Yeah, someone who just rewatched them all. All right, here's my list. Okay, everyone's. It's a wild list. Yeah. To be clear, everything in this movie is from an eight to a ten. Everything on this list. I mean, on this list, yeah, sorry, yeah. on this list, right? Yeah. Like, it's either, yeah, top or very high sure. for me. So ranking it is sort of very much a matter of personal enjoyment I, more than I objective quality. I want to offer quality. the exact same qualifier that I'm because just talking about, which ones I enjoyed the most. Number one, Spirit, this is me. This yeah. is me. Yeah, this is you. This is me. Whoa. That's number one. It's Greatest Showman. All right, yeah. dog, yeah. take it. All right, sorry. Spirited Away, Looking number one. Uh, number two, Ponyo. Of course. Number three, Porco. Mm-hmm. Number four, Wind Rise. Mm-hmm. Ziz. Mm-hmm. Number five, Kiki. Mm-hmm. Number six, Totoro. Mm. And I, I, all of those are perfect. Yeah. Number seven, Castle in the Sky. And number eight, Nausicaa. Those two are very much uh, twinned for me. Okay. And then number nine, Cagliostro, which I love. Yeah. And number 10, Mononoke. And number 11, How. Oh, Mononoke sounds kind of wild. That's the, the Mononoke and How are the only ones that I might not just want to watch every single day. Yeah, and I still love them. 
Okay, my number one, Spirit Away is just kind of undeniable. Hell yeah. It's it like it's just uh it's just a perfect object. I agree. Uh number two, my main man Porco Ross. Hell yeah. He's uh, a good boy. A movie that Miyazaki refers to in this documentary as foolish. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, is he subtweeting me? <laughs> Boy, oh boy. But then he, they're, they're he like, loves it. but they press him on, they're like, what do you mean by foolish? And he's like, well, it's for children. Right, right. I didn't have the courage to make a film that wasn't for children. And then you're like, that's his kid's movie? Yeah, I was like, I'm about to say, like, that ain't, that movie's not really for children, but rather, whatever, whatever. Rather be a pig than a fascist. Exactly. Uh, that kid's path. It's like Baby Shark. Um, okay, number two, Parco Rosso. Number three, Castle Cagliostro. Number four. I expected that to be very hard for you. Yes. I uh, love him. Been watching a lot of uh, Lupin. Lupin. Uh, I bought a Lupin action figure, which is uh, maybe the best action figure I own. Cool. Not going to go into this, but it's... Uh, now, that seems like a whole... That's like a Patreon episode is you talking about your action figures. Let me just put it this way. It's very well it's engineered. Oh, wow. Very well engineered. I don't know if I love that. <laughs> I don't know what that means. That would be an opportunity <laughs> to use the 3D mic. And we can record Griffin playing with his toys. Yeah. Ben's like, look, I bought these damn 3D I gotta mics. Use this fucking thing. <laughs> the B&H was closed on a Saturday. It wasn't used for the fucking so six months. So mad about it. Look, I, I'm not saying that I'm going to take you up on this, but I like that for the first time I said something about toys where you were like, I don't understand that. And you're almost edging on asking exactly. me to explain exactly. myself. But uh, later. Terrible okay. engineer, but can we very quickly merchandise spotlight the thing I got you? Of course, little Ponyo. Because I, I, I forgot to mention I that. I forgot to mention it. Well, because it took you a while to remember to give it to me. Oh, yeah. and I have your glasses. Oh, amazing. That's my merchandise spotlight. But I got David a little plush Ponyo. It's a little stuffed Ponyo. It's so cute. It's about four inches yep. long. Mm-hmm. And what happens? Yeah, she'll wiggle. It's she wiggles a along. String you pull cute. it, and it wiggles along on her belly. She rolls. It's a, it's, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's fish Ponyo. Full fish Ponyo. Full fish Ponyo. Okay, so Cagliostro is number three. three. Number four for me is Castle in the Sky. Mm. I like mm-hmm. those large suns and those flying machines. Number five is Princess Mononoke. Sure. Number six is The Wind Rises. Sure. Number seven is Kiki. Okay. Then I would say Nausicaa. Sure. It's hard to do this. No, I would do Ponyo above Nausicaa. Okay. And then Howl's Moving Castle. Did I cover all of them? Uh, oh, I forgot Totoro. Wow, bottom. No, Totoro, I put... It's not bottom because it's definitely above Howl for me. Okay, so put it at 10. Okay, I put it at 10. Yeah. I just, I just, I, I, I feel like a dummy, but it's the one I still kind of can't crack. It's a movie I really admire and appreciate, but because I saw it as a full grown up, it's always been something I more admire and appreciate than watch over and over again. Yeah, um, but it's very good, quite good. David's packing his bag. He has to go see Last Christmas. Gave him his heart. Uh, probably, I don't know. Yeah. I keep I keep fucking the lyrics up. Yeah, Paul Feig, right? It's a Paul Feig movie. It's a Feig picture. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't mind Paul. You know what his next movie is, right? No, uh, Dark Army. Oh, I do vaguely know, which this, is yes. not part of the Dark Universe, but is about Universal monsters. All right, uh, all right. Weird to just title it Dark. Anyway, that was me as David is literally running out of the I studio. Know. Do you have any final final thoughts, David? It was a great miniseries to do. Uh, it was. 
weirdly contentious for the fan base at times, but whatever. Yeah. Um, I really loved watching these movies, and then the Demi series is really good. It's very different. Yeah, especially, I think so. Especially compared to We got like half them in the can. Uh, good apps, good guess. Later, David. <laughs>